Benchmarking for insurance companies has been a problem for many, many years. And today we're going to talk about something called benchmark snapping with Eric Troutman, senior insurance strategist at Loomis Sales. Eric, thanks for being on. Thank you very much for having me, Stuart. We're very happy to have you. I want to start this off like we start them all off, except for I have a little bit of inside information. Hometown, first job of any kind, not the fancy first job. And then fun fact, but the fun fact I actually already have on you. So can you just give me your hometown and first job? Town's a tough one because I moved around a lot as a child. So <laughs> born in Poughkeepsie, New York. So I guess that's the home hometown. But we moved many times while I was growing up and wound up basically finally in Wyoming and then coming to Boston in, in 1988. Wow, good uh, for you. Basically been here ever since. So I kind of call Boston a hometown now. Good deal. How about first job? That would be cashier at a Long John Silver's in uh, Colorado. There you go. A fishy start. I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. I'm sorry. So I got a, I got a text this morning from one of your colleagues who said that you have five kids. So the fun fact for you, I'm going to go with five kids. Tell me a little bit about the family. It can be described as chaos at times. So we have five kids, three girls, two boys, and they're kind of tightly packed from 17 is the oldest and nine is the youngest. Good for uh, you. So, and they go to a multitude of schools and it's just, you know, it's just one of those chaotic scenes. And we also have, I mean, the other, I guess, fun fact would be that we basically have a, a zoo at home as far as animals go. Oh, that's perfect. What's the animal situation? Give me a little bit of an inventory. Three miniature schnauzers, dogs, right. uh, three bunnies, wow. four guinea pigs, and then various, I guess, reptiles. So we have uh, leopard geckos, we have chameleons. We also have some more exotic ones like tarantulas and uh, centipedes. Wow. Uh, so that sounds like so a fun house to grow up in as a kid. That sounds like a cool environment. They, they love it. That's so, awesome. That's the greatest, I, thing, you can, greatest wanted, thing you can I just wanted for. one black lab to sit on the couch, and that's what I got. That's perfect. So. <laughs> All right. So you've been in the insurance asset management business and working with insurers in an advisory capacity for over 25 years. Benchmarking, as you know, is a challenge for a myriad of reasons, some of which we're going to talk about. Can you kind of set the stage for benchmarking for our audience? So benchmarking, I mean, in total return space, it's very clean in many ways because you just put, you know, a certain amount of dollars into a portfolio, you have a benchmark which the manager runs against and, you know, outperformance is easily seen by having more money than what the benchmark would have given you after time. Performance attribution, all of that is very simple, clean because you don't have constraints on it. But when you come into the world of insurance, that all changes because you're getting money at specific times in terms of premiums coming in, which you are investing in certain ways to fund the liability payments and the growth of the surplus of the company. And those timestamps matter in terms of one, when you price the product and determine the rates that you're going to charge and then putting the money to work and then, you know, holding that money in those investments over time and not necessarily worrying so much about the ebbs and flows of the market. And that can come in a, you know, two different flavors. I kind of think of it is that 
the constraints of the company in recognizing, you know, realizing gains and losses, and then just, you know, being and holding the money in things that like duration matched ways so that when you price a product today, it is, you know, good for the life of the product. So you don't care about the ebbs and flows as much of the total in the total return space. And that means that, you know, when you're investing, that timestamp matters very much to your assets and how they're going to actually behave across time. And it also gets into, and I mean, we've got, I don't want to front run a bunch of our questions here, but there's also all sorts of regulatory and ratings considerations. I mean, it is not as simple as running total return. Not only is it timing of pricing the products and whatnot, but it's also how you're rated and regulated, right? You can't, is not a purely economic equation of, of making asset allocation decisions and changes and reallocations. No, you have to, you know, take the capital position of the company into account, what the rating agencies will think of said capital allocation and how much volatility you can actually as a company take. And that, you know, because, you know, while the liabilities may be fine, the surplus of the company could become strained. It could impact your business processes, your dividend policies, and other efforts that you have around the firm as to how the assets perform. So you do have to take into account the actual overall volatility of the assets and all the, the regulatory needs that comes down on that. Yeah, I mean, versus, you know, you've got an institutional asset management operation running inside of an operating insurance entity, right? And you never, you can never lose sight of that. No, your your client is the actuaries, the products, and the overall entity itself. Speaking of which, that's where you got your start, right? You started out on the actuarial side. I did. I started in the uh, actuarial development program at John Hancock Life and rotated around the company into several different uh, locations one of which was actually their mutual fund complex, which was quite interesting. And then eventually wound up in their, what they called their investment policy and research area. And the way I kind of look at it is that was the third leg of the stool. So you had the product development actuaries, the pricing actuaries that developed the products, priced the products, and they knew what they needed. And then you had the bond department that actually put money to work. And our role was to basically kind of work with both parties to understand how we could invest what we could buy, and then basically tell that to the actuaries, and then also hedging overall, like making sure that the ALM was aligned. That was my start, was growing up in that department. That's a terrific place to start in this business, right? The same colleague, actually, that sent me the text message about you said the following, the life insurance business has changed more in the last two years than it has in the last 50. How has the insurance industry changed while you've been working with it? Maybe even more importantly, where do you see it going? The biggest change I think has been, one is the asset classes, sectors, and investment policies, I guess, of the companies. They've gotten much more diverse, much deeper into all the different places in the asset sectors, not just your plain vanilla treasuries and you know public bonds. They've evolved dramatically from that. The ALM and hedging strategies have evolved a lot since then as well uh, across time. As far as, you know, I think the competitiveness has gotten much more increased over time as well. So that, you know, that drives, you know, well, in life insurance in particular, it drives, you know, crediting rates 
and the aggressiveness with which you invest. So that's gotten, and that's one of the big, I mean, one of the biggest fundamental changes has been kind of the private equity parties coming into life insurance space and how they have changed the game. Now that's been, you know, it's not that they can invest differently per se. It's that they can, they can tap into because they're pooling a lot of assets. They can tap into less liquid markets that take much more, uh, I guess, size to get into and much more, say, relationships to get into because you need to be in the deal flow to actually place the money. And, you know, they have done it for, you know, they've done it for return reasons. I mean, they saw a huge capital base in life insurance and you had life insurers that wanted to get rid of lines of business. So there was a natural synergy there that they could achieve their returns by investing in these more aggressive and I guess less liquid areas to basically price the business such that a life insurer would get rid of it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, so when you look out and you say, when you see public bonds where their trading rates have come up significantly, you mentioned that insurers are investing in a much broader set of asset classes than they have been prior. Do you think that's going to continue do you see that trend slowing down any with rates rising at all? What's your take on kind of the future direction? I mean, I think the search, there's always a search for yield. And so insurers will naturally, I mean, you think about it almost like water. It'll just kind of, le- it will flow out in search of every nook and cranny that it can to find yield. I think there are limits on that because I think as more and more money flows into different sectors, it causes, you know, the pricing to get maybe too rich. You know, you've seen that, you know, time and time again, where things, you know, a new asset class comes along, the early movers take advantage of that, and then maybe too much capital chases it. It basically kind of ruins some of the alpha, if you want to kind of put it that way, in what they can achieve. I think the big, you know, the banks stepping back from a lot of the different lending areas and the more kind of private equity and private capital direct lending stuff coming up insurers naturally can step in there because of the illiquidity life insurers in particular can step in there because of illiquidity they have the deep capital and it aligns from an alm you know standpoint so they can naturally step in there i'm not going to say we've reached our limit but I think there does come a, a time when, you know, there will be, you know, enough money chasing certain areas that, you know, eventually, you know, there's only so many assets and too much capital chasing. So when we talk about benchmarking in particular, right, all the, the capital aspects, the lines of business, the profitability, the tax position, the list goes on and on. It makes it virtually impossible to benchmark insurance companies one to the other. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned in tackling this challenge and what you're doing at Luma Sales to talk about ways to sort of unravel some of the benchmarking challenges for insurers? Yeah. So, I mean, there are, so because of, I mean, the way I kind of think about it is starting with the liability, the actuaries always develop the 
product, you know, when developing the product, they develop to be profitable. So they have a lot of things priced into the product already, such that if I can deliver on a yield that they make, a, you know, if I make an assumption on a yield I can get on my assets, you know, default should be taken out, profitability, all these other expenses should be, and I should get what I want at the end of the day. And then the question is, is I turn it, you know, I take in my money, I've priced it where I thought I could and make money. Then there's the question of how do I, does the asset manager deliver on that? You know, internal or an external asset manager, how do they deliver on that? And because of all of the, as you mentioned, the taxes and other constraints and regulatory capital, it's not a total return question. It's more of, can I put the money to work? And one, you know, there's some simple metrics you can do to, to determine whether you're actually at least achieving some profit, you know, your targeted profitability and targeted yields. And that's simply by saying, you know, you took in a certain amount of premium over the month and your priced products would have had your yield at say X and your manager, you know, external again, basically put it to work at Y. And, you know, on the surface, Y is bigger than X and therefore I should be fine. Now you also want to layer in the, you know, various things that you mentioned, like I need to make sure that my rate, you know, overall rating of the of the assets is within my tolerance, such that my regulatory capital is good. My duration is aligned so that, you know, when you know this thing move, I don't have reinvestment rate risk. So you have to make sure that those metrics and other things are in alignment. But at the end of the day, you know, my asset manager has put money to work at a higher rate than what I I wanted, or has at least achieved the rate I was hoping to get. And you can do that. I mean, you can simply, you know, I've done this process many times where, you know, you basically look at, you know, either a model portfolio or an index as a guide for what you should get. And you basically say, you know, we either took it, you know, you could do it on any timestamp. The more granular, sort of the better. You could benchmark your asset manager that way. Uh, The issue is, is that, you know, a lot of managers can, you know, you can, you know, yield can be, it can be a misrated bond and you get more yields and there's a lot of downgrades or defaults or things that you suffer down the line, but it doesn't come out in the metrics that you're seeing at the beginning. And that's where, you know, I think of, of this benchmark snapping process actually becomes a very interesting option or alternative. So talk a little bit about that because I'm not familiar with the term of benchmark snapping I think this is really the heart of what we want to talk about is to really explain to our listeners exactly what it is and how an insurer can implement that. Yeah. So snapping is the concept is I kind of think of it as either snapping at the chalk line, snapping a picture of what the, so the investable universe looks like as of a particular timestamp. And then basically using that picture that time-stamped universe, that snap, as a guide as I move forward in time. So you can put a lot of nuances into that snap. So you can, because if you think about it, if you know, if I use just the corporate index as a guide, well, there's a lot of bonds in the corporate index that do not trade, that aren't liquid. So maybe I want to think about a snapped universe that's only of bonds that were issued within the last 60 to 90 days. Because my port, my portfolio manager can only buy those bonds because those are the ones that are trading. So there could also be, you know, indexes can contain small bonds that you can't find. 
you can put a lot of different things into this construction of your your snapped benchmark and then you know you you basically do this you know this large algorithm and you say on you know 630 we put in a hundred million dollars into this portfolio my portfolio man the selection universe would have looked like this and you can build a portfolio out of it now the investment manager will go and buy their portfolio and then you can just simply move those universe the you actual portfolio will move forward in time and your snap benchmark slash portfolio will move forward in time and what we do is we just basically build that portfolio and track that portfolio going forward i see so is saying here is an investable universe at a point in time and then i'm going to compare what the portfolio i actually bought at that point in time and i'm going to compare those two because yes. because if i understood you correctly and i mean i know this but it's a very hopeful reminder that when you look at benchmarks a lot of those bonds i can't buy right i just can't cannot go buy them because they're not trading. So it's why benchmark myself against something that I can't own, right? So this is really a practical way to do this. Indexes are a good start, but you'll often get pushback from managers, which say, you know, I can't buy these bonds. I can't buy this area. You know, you may have sector, you know, as you, you know, as issuance ebbs and flows in the universe, you know, different sectors could come, you know, be too large for what you want for your risk exposures. Ratings could be too large for your risk exposures. You may want to remove some of those mispriced bonds, you know, some that are triple B that are trading like high yield or things like that. You just basically want to hone in on, you know, what would the manager or could buy given your guidelines and, and so on. And is that how manual of a process is that? What bonds were issued in the last 60 to 90 days that I can actually buy? How do I get that universe put together? Honestly, that's where the computers come in. I mean, honestly, you can you can turn you you build the selection criteria and then you turn it over to what universe do you want to want to layer these you know these selection processes on? It can be you often start with an index like say uh, Bloomberg corporate index or a securitized it or something. And then you layer on top of that, these selection criteria, but the computers can do it all. And they can go through and you can use trace data to access what did and didn't trade. And you can put that in uh, and you can basically build the index and size the index. You can size it up to the dollar amount actually that you purchased. And you can have things in there where you know you could conceivably also have minimum lot sizes and things like that. So you can be, and it's not necessarily a one and done. You can, what we've found is that sometimes you get too granular. And what you get is you cut the selection universe so fine that you get idiosyncratic noise and you want to back off. So in securitized space in particular, we've found that somewhat of a less granular snap benchmark might be a better option than, you know, targeting just a double A or single A or triple A, you know, ABS or things of that nature. So the it's a back and forth a little bit to, to work out some of the kinks. Okay, Eric, that helps. So let's talk about with regard to benchmark snapping. Can you talk a little bit about if I'm using a total rate of return benchmark and doing it what I would refer to as the traditional way of 
of just looking at an in, at index returns, right? That is very likely or has the potential to give me a false reading or a false sense of how I'm actually doing. So what differences have you seen in using the benchmark snapping approach versus the traditional approach where insurers are concerned? So the total return benchmarks are kind of you know evergreen. So bonds come in, bonds go out, and they don't, you don't, you do feel, you know, when the, in the month that a bad event may happen, you know, you will feel that in the total return, but then it just leaves the benchmark and you never see it again. And the new bonds come in and you can't buy those and so on and so, you know, so the total return universe is never static. It's always changing, but that's not the way the insurance portfolios are managed at all. It's not that it's a buy and hold, but it's very much, you know, a buy and hold for a long time because of, you know, again, because of the ALM aspects and other aspects of just managing to an insurance liability. So what the benchmark snapping does is that it will lock down the universe that you could have bought as of that timestamp. And it's also great to get a reflection of, you know, just what was going on in that, you know, you think about tight spreads versus wide spreads for, you know, just, you know, poor underwriting standards at a time and, and good underwriting standards at a time. So by locking down that universe, you can really start to benchmark whether the asset manager is any good at credit selection. Because what you can do is as, as you go forward in time, you have the universe that they could have bought and you can say, you know, we had 10 downgrades and we had five upgrades. And then you can go over to the actual management portfolio and say, oh, I only experienced three downgrades and two upgrades. Or you can actually get that comparison. Now, it takes time for that to develop. And that's the one interest, you know, where, you know, you can go back and you can use index yields at a particular date to basically, you know, do a kind of book yield comparison. This benchmark snapping process basically adds this time dimension where you can actually start to determine whether you know the manager can deliver on credit selection and you know get you that you know get you increased yield with reasonable metrics well i mean to your point uh, you know i've run a fair amount of insurance money back when the earth was cooling and the way that you're describing this is very consistent with how insurance portfolios are actually put together, right? It's like at the time when the money is there, what is my investable universe today, right? And then if I can freeze that and compare what was the performance characteristics of what I actually bought versus what I could have bought, that seems like a very pragmatic way to look at benchmarking, particularly when you're talking about statistics, upgrade, downgrade statistics, for example, which have, as you very well know, capital implications for insurance companies and OTTI implications for insurance companies and other things that total return investors don't deal with. Yeah. And I think another aspect that can come out of it is like reinvestment rate risk. Because so if I if I lock the universe down, I call it aging the benchmark. If I age the benchmark and I keep the ecosystem closed, all the cash stays in there. And as it comes off in principal and coupon, I have to reinvest it and I reinvest it. And the way this works is essentially, so if I, if you go back to the benchmark staffing, I make $100 million contribution in on June 30th, 
I then on July 31st, I make another 100 million. Well, I just do another snack. And then I meld the two together. And now I have a combined benchmark snap portfolio that's, and as you can see, it's, it's starting to grow and I can keep that going. And then I can also recycle all of my cash flows back through it. And so I keep that close and I can use that as a gauge against my asset manager to also, you know, getting the hundred million dollars, two times, three times, four times, and keep that going. And then if they are better at buying, you know, things that don't call, aren't prepaid, that, you know, if rates drop, for example, I'm thinking of securitized in particular, there's that reinvestment rate risk that I can get. And essentially these snappings, these benchmark snappings will pick up on that. And if my manager is better at managing that, then that will also start to come. I have to say, it seems like a very logical and very solid way to look at things, right? I mean, what sense does it make to talk about a total return benchmark that I can't invest in, that I've got all kinds of constraints I've got to deal with? If I'm careful and, and I do a good job of my benchmark snap, and I'm looking at a truly investable universe that I could have purchased on that given day, now I've got something that I can meaningfully compare to and say, you know, yeah, I mean, whether it's an internal manager, external manager, or combination of both, it seems like I'm going to get a much better sense of manager performance, if you will. Not total rate of return performance is not what I'm talking about. Just what kind of value did the manager add versus what the investable set was. Have I got that about right? No, you're, you're spot on. And honestly, the genesis of this process at Loomis Sales actually was for buy and hold. And the chief investment officer said, well, how am I supposed to benchmark you? Because the total return isn't going to tell the story. And they said, well, how about if I do the universe that I could have bought? And that was the simple premise on which this was instituted years ago. And when I came to Loomis and I saw the process and I listened to them, how they described it, I was like, well, this is, this is book yield benchmarking for an insurance insurer. And we actually went out and so we, we talked about it internally and we actually worked with large life insurance company that had this dilemma of they had some total return manager, like internal managers that were more total return focused and they couldn't come up with good benchmarking. And so we worked on a process by which we, we snap. We send to them information on different, they have a pricing algorithm that has different cells, you know, that build model portfolios. And we snap benchmarks for all of them. And we started this a couple of years ago and we deliver this on a weekly basis. So that's a pretty granular time step for them because they're putting money to work every week. And we've basically provided them all of the information and they have built a, a whole process on their side to do the performance measurement, exactly as we're doing it on our book yield benchmarks. And it took us about a year to work out all the kinks in the process as far as that, you know, like that granularity stuff I alluded to and amount outstanding limitations, country limitation, industry limitations that go on top of this selection process. And they have gone live with it on their side. And their portfolio managers like the process because it's very reflective of what they can do and buy. Again, it's been great because it's nice to have this willing partner in learning. 
about it. And th this is, you know, we've been working on the aging process as well. This part where, you know, I basically, as I go through time, I evolve the book values and I evolve the book yields. And we're now working on, if you think about insurance portfolios, there's new money and there's existing money. The new money, it's easy to, you know, but how do I do this on an existing money portfolio? And without building it, the history up and the way we've kind of actually, we kind of, it's not that we, we kicked the, the can down the road, but we simply said, well, we'll build it up over three to five years. And then we'll call that the existing benchmark. And then we will have a new money benchmark, which we have already. And we'll have this existing one where we let some of the snaps drop off at the end and we keep adding to the front and we have a, you know, a, a snap process that spans three to five years. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it just makes, it just makes, I mean, it's very common sense. It's pragmatic. It is accurately reflects the value being added or not by the manager, whether it's internal or external. It's a mountain of data. I mean, it's not, to, there's no, there's no getting around that, but that's where you, you know, your systems come in and your processes come in and you need to have some, a lot of scalability in that process to do it. And you have to be able to, you know, track things that might fall outside. So if you think about one nuance that a lot of, you know, a lot of those indexes out there, when things move inside of a year, the bonds drop out. Well, now I, in my snap benchmark or in my portfolio insurance portfolio, that's not true. Right. So we have a process, we catch all of those bench, those so that we can maintain pricing and analytics and stuff. We catch all of that in our process and we form a pricing portfolio out of those to keep them. QSIPs come and go, you know, as you get exchanges or other things. And we have some uh, artificial intelligence processes to kind of catch that, to help us as we age the universe is that we can catch the QSIP changes or, or other corporate actions that might have taken place. So again, you have to have the systems there because if you try to do this on a manual basis, it will just implode from just pure weight. Yeah, that's amazing. Well done. I love this stuff. I mean, I love doing podcasts with guys like you because I learn new stuff. You guys have done a phenomenal job and I, you know, I really appreciate being able to hear what you've been up to. It's been, it's been I honestly, it's, it's been it. Cause I had, you know, bench, book yield benchmarking has always been just, it's not been there. There's like one or two products that I've seen out there that you know, tried to do it, but it's this process honestly is very, is what it was something that they didn't know they had because they honestly, when I, you know, when we first met with this insurer that I spoke of, I described processes that I had kind of done at my prior firm. You know, here's the way I used to think about it. And then when I was talking with them, when I came back to, back to Loomis who was talking with our IT guy. It was our IT guy. <laughs> and he's like, oh, here's this process we do for buy and hold. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that's it. That's perfect. And the IT side is huge. To, yeah, that's the, is huge. That's the, you got to have just people that love to roll up their sleeves and, and get in there. That is at the end of the day, that's insurance asset management. There's, it is a roll up your sleeves game, right? I mean, absolutely. The one thing that excites me uh, that I found in, in coming, and this is not, you know, <laughs> this isn't for the podcast, but one of the exciting things I found in coming from my prior firm to Loomis is just the technology is, it's cool. It's like so, scal it's like scalable. It's, it's so just 
crazy fast, uh, the way they've set it up, that we've been able to do things that I just didn't think we could do that fast. Like the book yield benchmarking is one of them. Just getting everything else in the system so fast is just, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, having great IT really helps, right? Um, it does. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's cool. Thanks for being on. I really, really appreciate it. I just have one last question for you. We talked, we kicked off the beginning of the podcast that you have five kids and I've got a soft spot in my heart being a former professor for uh, for college students. And so you've been in this industry a while and I would ask you this, if you could speak to the Eric Troutman that was graduating from college out of your undergraduate institution, what would you tell your 21-year-old self? What advice would you give your 21-year-old self as you look out in the world today, the financial services opportunities today, the world, the insurance world, asset management, whatever it may be? Is there any advice you'd give yourself today? Yeah, and it's it's going to sound kind of silly. You know, I used to think that, you know, education was the all end all and be all of everything. I love to uh, just try to consume as much education as I could. Always tried to get the best grades, that sort of thing. But what I missed was the personal side, kind of the networking side. And what I've tried to tell, you know, anybody that I like mentor or talk to, or when I'm thinking of my kids and telling them how to, you know, to, you know, trying to do, you know, in school, I'm like, try to make connections. And that's as valuable as education in some cases, in my opinion. And, you know, so when I think of that, I always try to, I said, just network the heck out of things in addition to doing good on your studies. And that will, you know, don't take a singular focus on just knowledge because it, and that's one thing that I think I mean. I, honestly, that's yeah, that's one advice I give because I think there's a mistake I made. That's great advice. And it's been great to have you on. And I'm very happy to have added you to my network. And it's been really fun to get to know what you're up to and learn about benchmark snapping. And it makes all the sense in the world to me. And, and um, you know, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. No, this is fun. I like this. I love talking shop. That's great. That's, a, that's about all we do here. So it's good to have you. Eric Troutman. Senior Insurance Strategist at Loomis Sales. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Podcast.